0: It's a hard time getting pregnant at all. And then all of a sudden they have this restored fertility. So you have to really watch. Um, the rate of live birth for those with kidney transplant is greater than 70%. Although there are complications, so there is a 12 to 14% risk of spontaneous miscarriage that we know about. Six to 8% um, elect for medical termination. 2.5 to 3% have stillbirth and about 2.4% may have an ectopic pregnancy. We'll talk more about that too. Um, There are other organ transplant recipients who do go on to get pregnant. So uh, there are 650 births following liver transplants on the American and UK registries. So these are ones that we know about. And there've been at least 37 births following a heart and or lung transplant. Um, And complications were thought maybe to be higher for these people compared to the general population but it's such a small number, it's hard to really determine. So let's talk about transplantation first. We'll have our first patient, case one is Roslyn, uh, named after Roslyn Mannon, who was the women in nephrology keynote speaker recently. Uh, the, this is a 24-year-old female, prior in stage renal disease, secondary to juvenile nephro... nephro- is on the wait list to receive a second kidney transplant. Um, She's returning for her listing update while awaiting for her next kidney transplant. So just a reminder, this is a celiopathy disorder that affects the kidneys, characterized by inflammation and scarring of the kidney, inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion, and is the most common genetic cause of childhood kidney failure, which is about 0.9 cases per million people also characterized by fibrosis, information of the cysts at the corticomedullary junction. And so what are you gonna ask her? This is again, the listing update. What do you wanna ask her? What would you like to discuss during this visit? Yes, if we're in the chat, I can't see that. Let me pull it up. So I think nephrologists forget to ask about this a lot of times, but we should definitely ask about, um, like sexual activity, um, if she's sexually active and then what her method of contraception is mm-hmm. and counsel her on potential toxicity of her current
1: medications.
0: Exactly. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Story.
1: What else should we be talking about? I guess it's part of the same question, but are you planning to get pregnant?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Turn that down, all right, good. Um, Anything else we should be asking her? So, just a couple more things to bring up. Um, one one question here is uh, we we do this routinely regardless, is um have they already had uh, live vaccinations if she's not on her immunosuppression? Um, can we give her the MMR right now? So that would be very helpful for thinking about pregnancy in the future. All right, next case. This is Agnes, named after Dr. Sanders' favorite pathologist, Agnes Fogo who is also um, the other keynote speaker for women in nephrology recently. This is a 20-year-old female with kidney disease, secondary to congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract with right-sided nephrectomy at age six weeks of age. Chronic kidney disease uh, is consistent with bilateral uh, reflux and the patient received a kidney transplant 10 years prior. She's just returning for a routine visit in transplant clinic. This is just a regular visit. And I just put a picture of uh, uh, the hydronephrosis, which again, we all know. So anything to ask her, anything we should discuss during the visit with her? Contraception. Yes, please.
1: Sexual
2: history, if she is active or not. Mm -hmm. Specifically, if she's on ACE or ARB, right?
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. And for transplant patients, the cell set too. Exactly. And like Dr. Hunsicker said last time, is she planning on getting pregnant? All right, so at the time of transplant, we do counseling. So we should have contraception counseling and actually probably before transplant, this, this all happens too, but at the time of transplant, we need to do contraceptive counseling, discussion regarding risk, depending on concurrent comorbidities, CKD, whether the patient has proteinuria and kind of discuss Uh, with a nephrologist and obstetrician about future uh, plans for pregnancy for for having children down the road, Uh, discussion regarding potential maternal risks in pregnancy, discussion of potential fetal risks in pregnancy, and if they are planning pregnancy, we should discuss the timing of pregnancy, and you should wait at least one to two years post-transplant Um, A retrospective study of about 730 pregnancies revealed an increased risk of death-censored graft loss during the first and second year after transplantation with a hazard ratio 1.25, 1.26, but in the third year that was no longer associated with an increased risk of graft failure. Other things to talk about, birth control. So um, hormonal methods may be safe in women with stable graft function. So um, I have the picture of the oral contraceptive pills there. It's not recommended in those with uh, uncontrolled hypertension or those who have a risk of thrombosis, of course, because the estrogen. Uh, The IUDs, uh, subdermal implants are all options as well. And then there are lots of papers saying that emergency contraception was contraindicated, well, not contraindicated, but you wanted to avoid it as much as possible in the past. Um, But now with the progesterone only plan B, um, it's perfectly fine to take it before or after transplant. Um, In the past, um, I was talking to the MFM uh, group, and they said they used to just prescribe the oral contraceptive pill, um, like the the month, and then you just take a whole bunch of those pills um, based on their recommendations. So now it's all changed to plan B, which is a lot safer. All right, let's talk about pre-pregnancy. So back to Roslyn. Um, she had the prior in stage real disease, uh, she received her kidney transplant now about a year ago, we jumped in time about two years. She's also planning on getting married next month and she asked about pregnancy. What would you ask her anything we should be discussing with her. We've talked about it some, Um, we talked about planning, we've talked about contraception in the past, anything specifically for her.
3: Okay, I, I can step in and, you know, I can break the silence at least. Uh, so, uh, medications, of course. I mean, um, what what immunosuppressants is she on? And um, blood pressure control, what antihypertensives is she on? And um, uh, from lab-wise, proteinuria, creatinine levels. Mm. But these these are the things we can discuss with her and ask her.
2: And talk about what method of contraception is she using, maybe wait for another year because she's just one year out of transplant.
0: Exactly, thank you both. All right, and I have just two more things to add here. Um, uh, And and thanks for breaking the silence too. Oops, I go back, oh no, I went to the end. Okay, um, so two more things that I would bring up for her. Uh, which would be uh, considering uh, genetic counseling uh, because she does have an autosomal recessive uh, disease. And then the other thing that I would bring up is you should probably have her referred already to MFM so that we can start planning in advance to make sure she's not on other medications um, that we would be concerned about. So one more note on Roslyn. Uh, She also had early CMV viremia with a viral load up to about 450,000. CMV has now been negative for about two months, and she is still on val site for the CMV infection. Uh, Does that bring up any other considerations?
1: Oh, did you say something, Dr. Hunsaker? You're on mute.
4: Yeah, I said something, but I really think that the uh, fellows should be answering these questions. They're not for old guys like me and not that I don't learn from listening to you. But
2: Mm -hmm.
4: you might want to ask about Gancyclovir, which I think has some potential fetal toxicity.
1: Uh, yes, exactly, Dr. Sway, if
3: she has um, a CMV viremia before and uh, uh, she's on a suppressive dose of the wall sites, then we have to think about that, that what we can do with the valgancyclovir during the pregnancy.
0: Would we consider stopping the valgancyclovir during the pregnancy if she, say, got pregnant in a couple of weeks? Do you think we would stop it at that point or would we continue it?
1: Right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thoughts from anyone on that? Fetus is at risk for
0: congenital CMV if it remains persistently viremic. Exactly.
5: She's been negative.
0: She's been negative for two months. Are you going to risk taking her off the site now?
5: Well, is site contraindicated the pregnancy? I don't know.
0: Yep. So it, it when I talked to MFM folks, they said the bowel site is not contraindicated in pregnancy and that there would probably be a higher risk of stopping the bowel site if you think that there's going to be recurrent CMV infection. Um, so we're going back to those, those torch organisms that we learned. I mean, I haven't really thought about it since medical school, but um, it's definitely something to consider. So um, this would be another reason for her to delay her pregnancy for a little bit to get over the CMV viremia, possibly get off the side for a while and make sure the CMV viremia is gone and then consider screening during pregnancy again. So we're back to Agnes. She's our 23 year old female now, um, had the right side nephrectomy, Last time we talked to her was a few years before. She is now 13 years um, out from her kidney transplant. She was married in the last year and also interested in pregnancy. I don't know if we have anything new to say to her. I think it'd be a lot of the same uh, recommendations, although she's further out. And like Dr. Baig said, we need to talk about creatinine, proteinuria, all these other risk factors. Also of note, um, accidental pregnancy, um, there have now been a few reports of su- successful pregnancies, um, even in accidental pregnancy. And so um, there's no need to do systematic termination, but you need close follow up. And if they've been on SELSA plus minus, like losartan, an ACE inhibitor, or an ARB, you really need to inform uh, the future parents about the risks from those medications. And we'll go into a little bit more for the mycophenolate. So pre-pregnancy preparation, Um, you're at higher risk of diabetes if you have a transplant, so control of diabetes if that's there, Uh, control of hypertension, change the medications around, switch from lisinopril to labetalol or the alpha alpha methadopa or other options as well, Uh, switch from the mycophenolate mofetil to the azathioprine, and then do a medication review to ensure there aren't other medications that may be toxic like those ACE inhibitors and ARBs and refer to MFM. Um, Test for infections such as CMV, and I don't know if we routinely do this for those that are like 13 years out, but it's something that we should consider um, in addition to the obstetricians. And so there are goals prior to pregnancy, again, waiting at least one to two years after graft, at least six to 12 months following rejection, stable creatinine, preferably less than 1.5, absence of or minimal proteinuria, less than 0.5, hypertension is well-controlled, and the recommended immunosuppression, um, as of right now, is the calcium urine inhibitors, is a and corticosteroids. With the above regimen, um, statistically speaking, based on studies we have, there is not a major increased risk of congenital anomalies in newborns. It's about 5% in the transplant population compared to 2% in the general population. And these also can be safely used during breastfeeding. Uh, They are detected in breast milk in small concentrations, uh, but overall thought to be safe. So talking about steroids, uh, there is limited transplacental passage. Uh, Most of this data that we have right now is based on the IV steroids that they get for uh, maturation of the fetal lungs. Um, And so this 10% is related to those IV or IM steroids rather than um, low-dose prednisone. Um, From what I understand, prednisone doesn't really cross um, the placenta. Back in the 1970s, there was a use of low-dose prednisone for chronic infertility treatment, um, which resulted in maybe a lower birth weight in the prednisone group with the risk of malformations being comparable. Uh, There have also been cases of transient corticotropin deficiency and thymic hypoplasia. The thymic um, issues kind of tend to be a recurrent theme, so we'll talk more about that too. And also an increased risk of gestational diabetes uh, for obvious reasons, and then also premature rupture of membranes. Azathioprine, um, very low transplacental passage, one to five percent, and then also the fetal liver doesn't synthesize the enzyme needed for its activation, and there's three toxic metabolites that don't cross the placental barrier so overall thought to be very safe different studies show that congenital anomalies range from zero to 11.8 percent based on what study you're looking at the 11.8 percent study was a smaller study uh there is lower birth weight um all of this uh all this data that we have uh there's there's other issues confounding it of course and so i'll show you these uh risks associated with the medications But why are these people on the medications in the first place? Are they on the medications because they have a history of a transplant? Are they on it because they have a history of lupus or lupus nephritis? Are they at a higher risk already? We don't know whether it's from the medications or whether it's from other medications they're on or underlying disease. So it's hard to say. So the lower birth weight is again, a common theme. Um, In animal models, if you give a super high dose, greater than four times the recommended dose, they can get cleft palate, skeletal anomalies, hematology anomalies, chromosome abnormalities, and reduced fertility. But again, that's much higher dose than what we'd expect and it's animal models. Moving on to calcium urine inhibitors. Um, so the biggest issue we run into uh, post-transplant is trying to get the tacrolimus or cyclosporin up to a therapeutic range in the third trimester. So as soon as they start hitting the end of the second trimester, we start watching their tacrolimus levels closely because we have to increase, increase, increase to actually get to a therapeutic dose. Um, so the recommendation is monitoring every two to four weeks or even weekly during the third trimester. Again, that's a common issue.
2: Hey, um, Melissa, do you know why that happens? Is it like um, increased like plasma flow? I mean, hyperfiltration, like what, or is there something? that interferes with metabolism. I mean, that actually increases their meta- metabolism of it.
0: I am actually not sure. I'll look into it. Any other transplant physicians on, no?
6: So yeah. for, for tacrolimus, part of it has to do with the, uh, the hemodilution and the uh, increased plasma volume. Uh-huh. But for cyclosporin, I wasn't really aware that there was a substantial change in requirements Uh, during pregnancy, so I don't know. You're you're asking about the plasma concentration, correct?
0: Yep.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I wanted to know why. I mean, I thought, you know, whether there's something about, yeah, increased metabolism or just, it's just plasma volume issue. issue.
6: Yeah. But that
5: that would be a progressive change and not necessarily something that just happened. So Uh, again,
6: we have an observation and then there are hypotheses to explain the observation. Sometimes the hypotheses are wrong to so guess. The, the observation I think is correct. At least I'm sure, particularly the cyclosporine mammals
1: Do you know why cyclosporin doses or levels get low during
0: third
1: Oh, no idea. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I don't know. Okay.
0: All right. Well, I'll see if I can actually find anything that's tested. But thank you so much for your your answers there. Um, I guess there's a lot of transplant nephrologists hanging out together. So thank you. Um, and then the other um, thing to note again is after delivery, we have to decrease the dose again. Uh, Cyclosporin has a 37 to 64% concentration in the fetus, but it's not thought to be mutagenic or teratogenic. And rat studies at therapeutic dose said, maybe some cardiac toxicities and may suppress the self-reactive lymphocytes, which may make them at risk of autoimmune disorders in the future. But that's a lot of maybes um, in an animal study. Tacrolimus crosses about 50% concentration, so similar to the cyclosporine, um, but the fetal exposure is minimized because there's a placental expression of this glycoprotein P, which then transports the drug back into the maternal circulation. Uh, Cohort studies doesn't show the increased risk of congenital anomalies, again, about 5% in this group compared to 2% in the general population. Um, Similar similar results to those of cyclosporine and rat studies. Um, In addition, there is potential neural tube closure defects noted if exposed to very high doses. Again, animal studies not seen um, in people. Now to the one we get concerned about the most. Uh, The mycophenolate, cell CELSEP, myfortic, 23% risk of malformations. These are the different malformations. It can affect the ear, eye, heart, face, fingers. Uh, There can be esophageal atresia, spina bifida, all these different problems. 50% risk of miscarriage, so it's uh, um, even less likely to get to the point where you'll get the malformations. Uh, when we counsel people, we recommend stopping at least six weeks before you stop the contraception. So if they're thinking about uh, stopping their birth control pills, have them switch off to the azathioprine for at least six weeks before you actually stop the birth control pills. We also wanna do that anyway, cause we wanna make sure they're stable in the new regimen before they get pregnant. So we wanna make sure that they're doing fine on um, the, the medications they take during pregnancy. So serolimus, mTOR inhibitors, uh, there have so
3: been- Sweet, a- can I interrupt very quickly at this? <clears throat> so this stratogenic effect of mycophenolate, it remains throughout the pregnancy or is it just during the organogenesis in first three months or first trimester and our, how does it work? I mean, it is, I mean, can we like resume it in the middle of the pregnancy or somewhere or we'll have to just continue throughout the pregnancy without cells happening?
0: Um, so, other people correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so, I, I, I don't think anyone starts it intentionally, usually in the, the late second or third trimester because of the risks that have been associated with it before. Um, and, and so, I don't think that would have been studied at all. Um, I, I doubt there are a lot of cases where it's been started in the middle just because it's been so teratogenic, and we know that it affects uh, the growth of these different organs, so it's probably not worthwhile doing it later. Um, but I'm not sure about data. Anyone out there do know anything about that? Otherwise, I'll get back to you on that, too.
1: Well,
4: it was, the the data came from experimental animals that it was primarily during the period of organogenesis, but as uh, Melissa has said, basically it's been contraindicated during pregnancy ever since, so there's virtually no data on the mechanism of it or the, the uh, period of, Possible use, and I don't think anybody would use it even in later in pregnancy.
5: Mm-hmm. But Larry, isn't the mechanism of action for azathioprine similar uh, to mycophenolate?
4: Well, yes, it is. Of course, they're both anti-proliferative uh, agents, but the, the data are very strong that that azathioprine is fairly safe, and uh, the limited clinical data of people who've had it, uh, as you've just seen, the risk of malformations, people who, uh, this is of course, mostly in people who uh, didn't know that they were pregnant and kept, kept on taking their stuff. So it's mostly an ergan, uh, early exposure problem, but we don't have much data on the later outcomes. So yeah, the so there
1: are, an-
5: there are two answers then. Either we don't have enough data on mycophenolate and. Uh, Cases that were observed are maybe just case reports, uh, either uh, what you see it's drug-specific as opposed to mechanism-specific.
6: Um, well, I think the data is probably true because we deliberately put people on azathioprine during pregnancy, and if the signal was this strong, we would have seen it. Um, and in terms of mechanism of action, mycophenolate is thought to be fairly specific for the for the salvage pathway that's operational only in lymphocytes while azathioprine is a uh, xanthine oxidase inhibitor that is involved in all uh, cells. So theoretically, at least, azathioprine effect should be more profound than cells, but the
1: data suggests otherwise. I don't know why.
0: This is a fun conversation. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, And then serolimus. There have been few pregnancies reported. It's currently a class C. There was a recent case series where all women stopped the serolimus as soon as pregnancy was detected. Unfortunately, there were three miscarriages in the first trimester and one case of structural malformation, Um, but that person was also on mycophenolate at the same time. Um, Overall, it's actually thought to probably be safe, but we don't routinely use it. Uh, Belatacep, Belatacep, um, no data in humans at all. Um, they've had three known transplant recipients uh, who are on it during pregnancy, no congenital abnormalities, did perfectly fine, no teratogenic effect observed in the animals, so probably okay. We don't know. And then thymoglobulin. Um, so if they have rejection, um, can they receive thymoglobulin, or if they get pregnant shortly after receiving thymoglobulin? What are the concerns? So the biggest concern is that it might affect the thymus development and induce chronic reduction of T cell immunity. This has not been studied. this is a theory. There have not been clinical trials, only few case reports available. Um, One case uh, delivered at 37 weeks, um, had a smaller birth size, no fetal abnormalities or infections at six months postpartum. We don't know long-term data. No known fetal malformations. So maybe it's safe. Maybe there's thymus development issues. Maybe they're being put at risk of um, having lower immunity later in life. We don't really know. Uh, basaliximab, there's pretty much no data at all, uh, no teratogenic effects reported in animals. So again, probably safe. We don't know. Also, I don't think we'd use basaliximab in pregnancy pretty much ever. There is no reason to. So moving on back to Roslyn.
6: Melissa, can I ask a quick question? Um, I was just thinking, you mentioned a 50% miscarriage rate. What is the miscarriage rate in the general population?
0: Um, I, I don't know the miscarriage rate. I think it's been quoted before like 20 to 25%, although um, the data that we have doesn't capture everyone uh, because lots of times it's not reported. So when you see the transplant numbers, it's actually uh, lower than I think the general population. I'd have to look up the exact numbers. I think it's lower than the general population because we're not capturing everybody. Eight to 15% from Google per Dr. Honkinen.
6: So if it's 15%, then it's only about a threefold increase risk. 50% seems like a lot, but maybe it isn't that much.
0: Although I wonder, cause our data, everything we have for our data is, is kind of scarce. So I don't know yeah. if we're actually capturing all the pregnancies either, but that's half of them. That's one and two, that still seems like a lot even in the
2: general population, I think the way they're reporting data is that amongst the women who knew they were pregnant, amongst the ones that did, didn't know they were pregnant and had a miscarriage.
1: So that number is going higher than 30 to 50% from what I'm looking
6: Yeah, that's my impression. <laughs> I, my impression is that miscarriages are actually a very common phenomenon and some of them are not, or maybe many of them are not recognized.
0: So. Oh, I'm sure. And if it's just a chemical miscarriage, um it's probably not. It, yeah, it, it's hard to say.
5: So, with the yeah. thymoglobulin, were you suggesting that we do a pregnancy test before we give finals? Uh, <laughs> well, you
6: well, could argue not? that we should be why doing not? pregnancy tests to anybody who's getting admitted to the hospital who's exactly. a reproductive That's what age. ER
1: is doing. That's what ER is
6: doing. We're not
1: doing. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not.
6: Sorry, Melissa. Well, we're not doing, by the way, we're not,
5: since we're in this uh, area, we're not doing REMs uh, for cells either. When no. we start, uh...
0: we are. The pharmacist does it.
6: But if we do it, in, if we start them, uh, let's say in clinics, we don't do it. it. But there are REMs and then there are REMs. This is not a mandated. REMS. You don't lose your
2: license. Um, Quick question for Melissa: When you say like miscarriages, what are the studies that you're looking at that you've seen? Uh, Are they are they counting a a pregnancy prior to six weeks and lost? Are they counting that as a miscarriage or after between six weeks and on? Um,
0: It doesn't say. It just says miscarriage.
2: Yeah, because that's I could see where a lot of missed. You know what I mean? Like missed. uh, You know. You know. Missed cycle, and then. Mm-hmm. the issue is how do they know it's you know they don't exactly get their cycle on time too probably right because of uh transplant i mean well in the that one year i wonder if that you know if there's a season in, in uh, menstruation too
0: yeah, whether yeah. you
2: catch all of it
0: yeah exactly um and and part of it is uh like what what birth control pills or next on, or iud are they on are they um getting frequent periods are they getting um I mean, there's the potential for pregnancy despite the the um, contraception, even though that's low. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, questions still. And we just, um, the way we gather the data doesn't tell us everything that we want. And it's particularly challenging for those who are pregnant or want to get pregnant because you can't randomize them at all and our information is very limited.
2: Yeah, if you guys see the chat box, Kathy Lee Sun is saying that the 49% came from the prospective study from Euro Network of Teratology. Mm. So that's where the data is from.
0: Excellent. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah, so it's it's hard to say. So again, loving the comments, keep them coming. Uh, oh, so we're back to Roslyn. Um, so she's now 27. Um, she's not had the active CME for about a year. So we're about two years out of transplant, no CMV for over a year. She's now pregnant. It's been six weeks since her last menstrual period. Anything we need to ask her? Anything we need to discuss during this visit?
1: Have we covered it all already?
0: I guess, oh, I think the main room's gonna talk.
1: Same thing, ask her about medications that she's taking. Exactly.
0: Medications that she's taking, any, anything else?
2: And whether she's on uh, any contraceptives?
0: Well, and, yeah, and hopefully she's off if she's pregnant. Um, fingers crossed, but yes, exactly. All right, and then all the other things we talked about. So hopefully we've already in advance talked about her creatinine, her proteinuria, her blood pressure, diabetes if she has it and doesn't look like she does you know, all the things that we've just gone through. Agnes um, is now 14 years post-transplant. She's still considering pregnancy, has not yet become pregnant, but she has switched her medications around. She is um, on azathioprine. And I didn't ask what we should talk about because we've already discussed it. And so things that we need to monitor for during pregnancy, going back to mostly Roslyn. So big thing of course is gestational hypertension. Um, Lots of people who have uh, kidney transplants have a history of high blood pressure. So we definitely have to monitor for it during pregnancy. Um, like we talked about, the calcium urine inhibitors, uh, adjust the pre-pregnancy target level. Although I will throw this out, is we don't actually know whether we need to truly get to the target level that we're going for. Um, We don't know whether being on lower calcium urine inhibitor, uh, like if it was the same dose, but it's a lower level, doesn't really matter. Um, Getting them to that level, does it prevent rejection or could they prevent rejection at the lower level? Again, lots of things we just don't know. Uh, monitor the kidney function and proteinuria serially, so you have to watch both the creatinine, the protein, and the urine closely, keep an eye on it, um, and we'll talk about why. Uh, monitor for anemia and administer iron as needed. And then there's fetal surveillance and serial ultrasounds where you just keep looking at the health of the baby. And like we talked about, monitor for gestational diabetes because they are at higher risk of diabetes too. And then um, kind of asking the plan for breastfeeding down the road to make sure that you continue medications that are compatible for breastfeeding as you uh, move forward. And then addressing vaccination status um, right now, especially making sure that they have their COVID vaccines, um, flu vaccines, the uh, the Tdap, making sure they have their pertussis vaccines in. Um, And again, we get lots of help from our MFM and OB colleagues for this. Um, again, don't do live vaccines, we don't do it in transplant, we don't do it uh, when they're pregnant either. So need for monitoring. So we already talked about those. Okay, so blood pressure, weight, kidneys, urine. Um, so hyperfiltration, we should talk about this. Uh, during pregnancy, there is glomerular hyperfiltration, like all of us know. Uh, There is a 25% increase in the 24-hour creatinine clearance within the first four weeks after the last menstrual period, and by 45% at nine weeks. Um, This is particularly important, again, for those who have the one kidney after transplant. We see some decrease in the third trimester, and proteinuria may develop in almost 40% of patients near term. Uh, this is part of why we talk about how a UPC should be 0.2 in normal people, but less than 0.3 in pregnancy. You allow a little bit more proteinuria, and that can be physiologic. So, main maternal adverse events that can occur for those who've had transplants infection, very common. Um, urinary tract infections are often asymptomatic in these patients, um, and there's a risk of pyelonephritis. And so, even asymptomatic uh, bacteriuria. Uh, we do treat it. Hypertension, again, super common, um, and it can predispose to preeclampsia, and it's a main factor for the cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, graft function. Uh, um, Preeclampsia, again, incidence is higher with those with poor graft function or hypertension, um, and preeclampsia can cause lots of issues. Um, Chronic hypertension, Previous preeclampsia and elevated serum creatinine at the start of pregnancy are the most prognostic. And with preeclampsia, women who have received transplants are at higher risk of postpartum serum creatinine levels um, being higher, preterm delivery, C-section, and small for gestational age infants. Uh, gestational diabetes mellitus we've talked about. And then acute rejection, um, the instance they have listed is about 10%, which is higher than I expected. Kidney considerations during pregnancy.
5: Can I ask you a question before you move on? Of course. So, do you think uh, proteinuria in pregnancy is a bad thing or not?
0: Um, So, we expect the proteinuria in pregnancy. The question is how much and how much is it changing? Are you going from, uh, and they often do the 24 hour urine in pregnancy, Um, are you going from a UPC of 0.2 to 0.4? Are you going from 0.5 to 3? Um, and, and I would argue that going to um, like a UPC of three or having three grams of protein in a 24 hour period is bad.
5: Because there is some argument that if you increase, that if you have hyperfiltration, you should be seeing some increase in proteinuria if you have, you know, to start with uh, uh, low or even moderate level proteinuria. Mm-hmm. And that is not the type of proteinuria that we're worried about that uh, increases uh, uh, I guess,
1: risk of,
0: uh, CKD. Agreed. Completely. Yep. So some physiologic increase is normal. Um, but I guess the trend is the thing that we're going to be watching the most.
2: Moni, how much, like when you say that this is the trend, I mean, this is what you're seeing, like are people suggesting that up to one gram is normal because right now our guidelines is 0.3 grams in 24 hours.
5: So, you know, if you have, a, I guess the way I would look at it, if you have an increase in uh, GFR by, let's say, she said 40%, uh, I would say that if you have an increase in proteinuria by 40%, I would think that's, you know, expected.
6: I don't know if it's as simple as that, because your final protein in the urine is a reflection of your glomerular permeability and the reabsorption. Your reabsorption yes. capacity. So I don't know whether we know. Answer to the question,
5: no, but uh, I guess coming up with a simple way of looking at it as opposed to saying we don't know,
2: but I don't know, like, yeah, I agree with Christy in the sense that you can't, you know, I mean, there's some sort of dysfunction going on, right? I mean, you're not supposed to see one and two and three grams in pregnancy, that's just not what's seen. <laughs>
5: So you know there is a lot of argument because if you look at uh, and and you know I'm actually quite interested in this. If you look at the drugs that uh, cause hyperfiltration, uh, uh, so again not a, uh, not hyperfiltration, uh, pathologic hyperfiltration, uh, and uh, you know I looked at I, personally I looked at the data on this drug that's being that's a trial, trials now, barbadosalon, and there is a lot of argument on the that drug causing uh, proteinuria. Uh, they actually have done studies and they look, they've done single nephron studies, uh, looking at the amount of protein per nephron. And uh, they didn't see that there was an increased uh, amount of protein per nephron, although, you know, overall, there was an increase in proteinuria. Uh,
6: Melissa, depending on how many slides you have left, you might just want to move on. It's
0: Otherwise, also you interesting might though. Your, you might hijack your meeting. But I love hearing about this. This is, uh, again, great conversation, so I appreciate it. I do have a question about the proteinuria. And when do you have to um,
2: really worry about, like, pregnancy-associated HUS?
0: So I I don't have a great um, answer in terms of uh, the the amount of proteinuria. And I think it'd be more the rest of the clinical scenario. And I I think I briefly talk about that. So I'm going to come back to that. But also... Also a great question. Um, So other considerations during pregnancy, the worsening of hypertension, preeclampsia, that's one in five, over one in five get preeclampsia after transplant. Um, Talked briefly thrombotic microangiopathy. And so it's hard to tell the difference between that and preeclampsia. So just keeping that in mind, especially since those with transplant are also a little bit higher. Um, and then worsening kidney function after the pregnancy or during the pregnancy, after the pregnancy, um, whether there's uh, potentially some silent rejection, um, whether there's recurrence or de novo glomerular disease or a drug-related nephrotoxicity, which for me in my experience has been um, more concerning postpartum uh, when they don't have their tacrolimus um, level or their, their dose change and there's they are postpartum now and have a level of 15 when Um, they were supposed to have that drop down, especially if they deliver somewhere else. Um, Vaginal or cesarean delivery. Uh, So the normal vaginal delivery is probably the safest method of delivery and we do encourage it. Uh, C-section should only be performed for medical or other indications. Um, there is unfortunately still about a 55 to 65% C-section rate, um, which is much higher than the general population, which is about like, think about a third. Um, and so it happens more commonly. And reasons for that include poorly controlled diabetes, severe high blood pressure, prolonged labor, or fetal disorders like malpresentation, non-reassuring heart rates, and growth restriction. Um, when you do prepare for a C-section, Uh, need to include reviewing anatomy of the transplant, uh, specifically the vascular anastomosis and the transplant ureter. And this is just a picture of it and kind of where the C-section goes, the ureter especially, um, you have to just make note of where it is. Uh, Back to Rosalyn. She's pregnant, she's in her second trimester Um, She uh, presented, she actually in in real life, she presented like on a Friday to her uh, OB and had a high blood pressure of 170 to 180 um, and had some diarrhea and some swelling. Uh, Dr. Thomas talked to her on Monday and got labs and this is what it showed. So today the creatinine is 2.3, two weeks prior is 1.1. Hemoglobin is maybe slightly lower 9.3 versus 9.9. Platelets are 57 from 144. Uh, the AST and the ALT are um, a little bit elevated, too. AST is out of range. Um, and the UPC jumped up to 5.7 from 0.19. So that is not a physiologic increase, and I think we can all agree on that one. Any thoughts on what she has?
1: Could be
5: help? could be hepatitis E. Uh, uh, what is it, fatty liver of pregnancy? Yeah,
1: NASLV. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
5: Thrombotic microangiopathy,
1: This
0: is a really good differential.
1: I think you're covering most of the ones
0: that I thought about. Excellent, thank you. Um, Again, found to have worsening creatinine, decreasing platelets, increased proteinuria, diagnosed with HELP syndrome and severe preeclampsia. Had her baby delivered via C-section at 25 weeks. Um, Her creatinine did return to normal, but she continues to have some microalbuminuria um, despite uh, being now um, a couple years out. Uh, Baby did fine, by the way.
6: Um, So Melissa, she delivered, she was taken to the OR that night.
0: Um, oh, she, yeah, she was. It was later that night. I remember. Yep, and I see the TMA was noted uh, by Eero as well. So thank you. Um, our, that was a good differential. It was really great. Uh, back to Agnes, um, all the transplant people will know who I'm referring to with this one as I uh, describe her her case. So um, I have a question on the previous patient. Um, what maybe you'll get to this eventually, but in terms of counseling for repeat pregnancy, if she wanted to try and have another pregnancy, what would be the counseling on that? So I, I think it's very difficult, um, especially if you've had preeclampsia before, um, so, uh, It, I don't have any numbers to give her. All I could say is that you're at higher risk of having preeclampsia again. Um, it may be a rough delivery. Um, I don't have great answers. Any of the other transplant nephrologists have um, anything that you would use?
6: So, you know, I don't have any great answers either. I would say that my um, counselor like severe preeclampsia, which is worse with the first pregnancy, um, I would perhaps look to her maternal-fetal medicine specialist to help with uh, counseling. You know, I don't have any idea, but I don't think that it that help or severe preeclampsia in the first pregnancy means you're going to get it in the second pregnancy. I
5: thought there is an increase no, risk for for the, for, for the pregnancy.
6: It gets less and less with every subsequent pregnancy. The severity,
5: the severity, but mm-hmm. the risk. Increases.
6: Yes, but. If you're not concerned about health and severe preeclampsia, just mild preeclampsia, then I don't know. I i really don't know. I can tell you this particular patient um where this was a traumatic experience for her and she's not planning any more pregnancies. That's not because any of us told her that that's her own personal decision without I think much physician input.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I would overall, and if she wanted to, we can, we can talk about trying to alleviate risk. Um, MFM puts all the transplant patients on aspirin when they see them as soon as they're pregnant. Um, so everyone gets on that prophylactic aspirin too. Um, so that, that won't change much, but yes, it's, it's a good question. I don't have a great answer for you. Um, Dr. Story. Thank you, Dr. Swee. All right, so back to Agnes. Uh, Received a living-related kidney transplant about 15 years prior. Um, She had been switched to azathioprine in anticipation of the pregnancy. Um, Had a bump in creatinine from 1.1 to 1.55 prior to getting pregnant. Um, Had a kidney biopsy, which showed chronic antibody-mediated rejection, C4D positive, borderline acute cellular rejection, and a new DSA. Um, treated with uh, steroids, IVIG rituximab, um, her cell was restarted, her azathioprine was discontinued, also developed diabetes after all of this, and currently has no plans for pregnancy. So just the act of us switching her medications, um, she ended up getting rejection, um, switching from the cell to azathioprine. Um, so there are risks with just changing the medications around in anticipation of pregnancy, not even the pregnancy itself. All right. So postpartum considerations, again, thinking about breastfeeding, if they're planning on doing breastfeeding, uh, screening for gestational hypertension, despite having already delivered, you still need to watch their blood pressure, uh, screening for any acute kidney kidney injury after uh, delivery, which can be related to preeclampsia, which can occur after delivery as well. Or like I said earlier, the tacrolimus levels, if they don't get if you don't decrease the tacrolimus, um, there's a potential for getting some toxicity from that. Uh, postpartum depression, and then following up with us, as well as uh, the OB team, and then talking about postpartum contraception again to make sure there isn't a pregnancy right after delivery. And then if they're not planning on another pregnancy, maybe timing for adjusting the immunosuppressive regimen again, when do we switch back to Cellcept? Um, or, or do we just continue on azathioprine for the short term? Just a note on preterm delivery, about 50% of women with a kidney transplant will deliver before 37 weeks gestation. 20% will deliver before 32 weeks. Mean gestational age is 36 weeks and preterm delivery is often induced because of high blood pressure, preeclampsia, the kidney number is getting worse or fetal problems. So this is not an uncommon thing to happen. 20% have intrauterine growth restriction. And the average birth weight for those who have transplant versus not is 2,400 grams compared to the 3,300 gram average for those um, who've not had a transplant. And then after birth, um, just looking at long-term, they were uh, often had growth restriction. So the birth uh, weight, height, and head circumference were lower but at 12 months, these differences were no longer significant. And then at month 24, 95% had a normal physical exam. So this is good for long-term prognosis. Um, Looking at one study of 48 children studied for a mean of 5.2 years, 95% of them had normal general health and 98% had normal development. The preterm birth, birth weight, and parents' socioeconomic level um, influence the neurocognitive development independently of in utero exposure to immunosuppressive drugs. So, if you um, looked at the drugs alone, um, there's a difference, but it was due to these confounding variables. Um, of note, again, lower B and T cell uh, counts after birth. Uh, so, there in one study showed the higher occurrence of infections in the first year of life. Um, and that's still. So there are higher infections in the first year of life um, for these children, but the question again is whether it's due to being preterm, maybe having the lower birth weight or is it related to thymus development? And then potential for premature hypertension or CKD in the adult life. Um, And so if they were preterm, do they have, um, you you would have fewer nephrons. And so are they going to develop CKD at an earlier time um, when they're older? and references. Uh, any
1: questions? A quick one. Just one quick comment about uh, preterm
6: birth and intrauterine growth restriction. Even in normal people, being born preterm and being small for gestational age increases your risk for ESRD
1: about twofold.
0: And then if they have something genetic, too. Um,
6: then you would obviously, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but you may well have an additive, additive effect if you have an additional problem. So you were born preterm and then have preeclampsia yourself and you were a smoker, I think each of those would independently have an impact on your future risk of ESRD. Mm-hmm.
5: It is interesting that when you look at, uh, we, we talked about cyclosporin and imuran not being as immunosuppressive you know, and increasing the risk of rejection. But when you look at patients who keep their graft the longest, they're actually patients that have been on uh, imuran and probably cyclosporine as well, so.
6: So there, there is um, a selection bias.
5: I'm assuming so.
6: So in the 1970s, um, the one-year graft survival for kidney transplant was of the order of 50%. So the long-term survivors are a particular group of people who may not have needed a whole lot. of I don't know if we can really take those long-term survivors who survived against odds and look at the more recent cohort, but maybe Larry can can comment on that. They're, um,
1: they're
4: real. I'm not sure what the question was, but the longer that you keep your graft, you know, there are two conflicting things. For the first 10 to 15 years, the rate of development of chronic graft changes that lead to graft failure is fairly constant. As the that's the slope is pretty linear on a log graph, but after about 15 years, there's a definite decline in the
5: it wasn't really a question; was more of a comment. And I, you know, Christie is right, but my comment was that when you look at the patients who keep their grafts the longest, are patients that, uh, and we're talking about decades. Uh, the, obviously, there is another bias there too. As I, as yeah, I, well,
4: that, that's what's called survival bias. Survival but, bias, and you know,
5: if you but have but, something was, that but what I was saying, there are patients who've been on Imuran, and obviously that's what we were using at that time too. So that's
6: that bias. No. Um, me, Melissa, another comment, if I may. You know, the literature used to say that if you had a creatinine of 1.5 or 1.4, you had a substantial risk of worsening kidney function. Has that changed at all? Are they refining um, GFR estimates by using estimation equations or anything because a serum creatinine of 1.4 or 1.5 in a 20-year-old is very different from a to
0: 1.5 in a 35-year-old? No, all the recommendations are very outdated. Um, nothing has been changed um, that I could find, um, which is which is unfortunate because in the recommendations I found, they still recommended not doing um, emergency contraception, which is not the case anymore. Um, so no, nothing has been updated. Still creatinine of 1.5 is the, the goal. Nothing about GFR that I could find other than here or there with the commentary. So that, that would be something that would be really great to to have changed. I don't I don't know if I'm that person. Any any other comments? All right. Well thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, everybody, and thank you for the conversation and the engagement. I really appreciate it. Thank okay.
1: you, Melissa. That's uh, very nice. Thanks for okay, Bye-bye.